The COVID-19 pandemic has been particularly rough on food service distribution. What's next for them? New predictions from IBM on technologies for tomorrow's trucks. And cargo theft is always a problem, but has it been worse during the pandemic? Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the editorial director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Aptian. Aptian is a global provider of mission-critical, industry-specific logistics and transportation management solutions. Aptian Routing and Scheduling delivers the most advanced transportation management systems to world-leading brands, helping to drive operational success, reduce transportation costs by up to 30%, while optimizing delivery routes to meet rising customer expectations. For more information, visit aptian.com. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors, Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham, will be along to provide their insight into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, this past year was especially hard on food service distributors. What did they do to survive this difficult year and what's the outlook for getting back to normal? To answer those questions, here's Victoria with today's guest. Victoria? Thanks, Dave. Yes, our guest today is Craig Hoskins. Craig is Executive Vice President at Performance Food Group and President and CEO of the company's Food Service Division. Craig is also Chairman of the International Food Service Distributors Association, or IFTA, as it's known. Craig is here to talk to us about a range of logistics trends in the food service industry, including demand for truck drivers and the industry's many challenges caused by the pandemic. Welcome, Craig. Thank you. So can you start by telling us a bit about Performance Food Group and the work of IFTA? Victoria, uh, Performance Food Group is a publicly traded company employing more than 20,000 people throughout the country. We're involved in food service distribution through our food service division and in specialty and convenience distribution through our Vistar division. Pat Haggerty leads our Vistar division and I'm responsible for our food service business. Today, however, I'll be speaking as the chairman of IFTA our industry's trade association, with numerous members, including large private and publicly traded companies, specialty companies, and proud regional and local independent distributors throughout the country and abroad. The food service industry has been hit hard by the pandemic, to say the least. What were some of the biggest challenges early on, and have conditions improved? Well, thanks for recognizing that. You know, since the original shelter-in-place orders uh, were implemented in mid-March, you know, our customers, distributors throughout this food service supply chain were impacted. Uh, it's hard to think of another industry that's been impacted as much as ours, uh, but we keep plugging away. You know, we're a $300 billion industry. We're bigger than even the airlines, and the crisis hit us, again, virtually overnight. You know, starting in late spring and early summer, restrictions on restaurants began to ease up a little bit. Business started to uh, increase, in part due to those reduced restrictions, but also, you know, our customers are just so creative and resourceful. Uh, curbside, takeout, delivery, outdoor dining, you know, a bunch of other ways that our customers figured out how to serve America's diners. Um, you know, that said, recent round of restaurant closures and restrictions, especially in California, you know, the upper Midwest and the Northeast really impacted our industry. You know, we're starting to rebound, um, and yet, you know, again, with cold weather and some impacts on, on outdoor dining, uh, you know, 
we've retracted a little bit as an industry, but again, our, our customers, our operators are just so smart and they're so tied into their local communities. They've figured out ways to, to begin to rebound again, despite those challenges. Um, you know, that said, restaurants need support now, which is why passing the Restaurants Act is so important. So, Craig, what are some of the things companies like yours and the industry as a whole did um, to help and to with these conditions you're talking about? Well, despite the pandemic, you know, the potential of this industry is, is substantial. Um, you know, we flexed as an industry to support the retail supply chain, you know, again, to, to help our customers um, and, you know, to help food banks and others who needed our ability to source and deliver food throughout the country. Uh, our Distributors have shown they're extremely flexible and uh, and and really are, you know out there and available to our country uh, when we're needed. That's for sure, and and I know that we noticed that as we were doing reporting all through all since you know the last year. I wanted to ask also about you know some personnel or um, associate issues. You know we've record, reported quite a bit on the logistics and transportation industry's demand for truck drivers. Many refer to the problem um, as a driver shortage. I was wondering, you know, how's that affecting your industry in particular, given the challenges we were talking about? Um, you know, how has that played out and is it tough to find drivers now? Well, you know, the, the growing driver shortage is well documented, Victoria, and it's a difficult in, uh, issue for our industry, uh, for sure. I think uh, last week was some of the really uh, big snowstorms and ice storms throughout the country. Uh, the supply chain is highlighted in terms of the need for drivers, the need for trucks. Um, according to a recent estimate, the shortage uh, is expected to grow to over 174,000 drivers by 2026. Uh, we have an aging fleet of drivers as well. You know, and behind this issue, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates the average age of a truck driver in the U.S. is 55 years old. The average age of a driver in entering CDL school is almost 35. So from our perspective, the solution's clear. The trucking industry and food service distributors and others badly need to bring younger drivers safely into the industry. Yeah, thank you for that. That leads right into what I was gonna ask you next. In your role as chairman of, of IFTA, can you talk a little bit about what steps the group is taking to help the industry through these difficult times as it relates to the driver issue we were just talking about, as well as the broader challenges? You know, what sort of specific programs or, or um, issues are you, you putting out there? Well, we've really been working hard on something called the, the Drive Safe Act. Uh, fortunately, uh, a forward-thinking group of bipartisan lawmakers in the Senate and House uh, introduced some legislation in the last Congress to address this shortage. Uh, the, the Drive Safe Act, uh, really what it does is it modernizes the federal law to empower the trucking industry and, and distributors such as our companies to fill these gaps, you know, with good, highly trained and, and young drivers. And we expect legislation to be reintroduced into Congress here shortly. Craig, can you give us some more specifics about the Drive Safe Act and, and what you hope it will accomplish? Happy to. You know, the Drive Safe Act focuses on one of the primary obstacles to bringing younger drivers into the industry. You know, the requirement is that they need to be at least 21 years old to drive in interstate commerce. You know, the, the, the tough thing about that is somebody could start driving in Alexandria, Virginia, drive all the way to Bristol as an 18-year-old commercial truck driver, 
and then not be able to drive across the street into Bristol, Tennessee. That 82-year-old uh, legislation couldn't be updated. That it's keeping qualified candidates from kickstarting their careers in the trucking industry. And it's preventing the industry from filling hundreds of thousands of open jobs. You know, there's some specific things that would be required for someone to get that commercial driver's license at that age. Everything from uh, completing at least 400 hours of on-duty time and 240 hours of driving time in the cab with an experienced driver. Every driver will train on trucks equipped with new safety technology. That includes active braking, collision mitigation systems, uh, video capture, and speed governors that will be governed down to uh, 65 miles per hour or less. Thank you. Yes, I know. And I think part of what you're referring to is a, there's a, a, an intensive apprenticeship program, I believe, as part of the whole act. And we, we've done some reporting on that as well. Absolutely. I know that uh, that's something that a lot of people are watching and waiting for a timeline on. So thanks for providing some insight on that. I, I wanted to sort of finish up by referring back to something you mentioned a little while ago. You mentioned the Restaurants Act. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what it does and, and if to support of it? Since the closures in March, our industry has been committed to supporting our restaurant customers through the crisis. So everything from advocating for legislation uh, to also, uh, you know, providing, uh, you know, services and ideas to help them through the crisis. You know, we've advocated for PPP funds, uh, providing our customers with tools uh, to help them bridge this gap. But really, we feel that Congress has to pass this Restaurants Act. Uh, real economic support that acknowledges unique restaurant assistance needed to survive act. That's bipartisan legislation that establishes a $120 billion revitalization fund to support independent restaurants and small franchisees as they deal uh, with these long-term structural challenges that are, that are thrown in front of them. You know, this, this bill provides real relief for any small restaurant that can demonstrate they lost revenue in 2020. You know, federal grants under the bill can be used for everything from retaining workers to operational expenses like inventory and rent. We all know our local restaurants and, you know, large and small have, have had to do a lot of work to deal with the changes and challenges of the last year. So thank you for talking about that. Um, and thank you again, Craig, for being our guest today. Um, it was nice to have you. Thank you. Victoria, thank you. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, you know, we've all worked hard to to uh, lobby on behalf of our customers uh, and our members and, and an opportunity to talk to you uh, through DC Velocity is important. Get the word out there about what we're working on, our optimism about the future, and uh, also what we've done to, to help out during this time. Uh, thanks so much for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome and thank you again. We've been talking with Craig Hoskins of Performance Food Group and IFTA. Uh, Dave, back to you. Thank you, Craig and Victoria. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. Ben, you reported this week on an IBM study predicting a new wave of technology improvements for trucking. What did you find out? That's right, Dave. If you follow the trucking sector, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about driverless cars and autonomous trucks, when they'll be commercially available, whether they'll take jobs from truck drivers, but an IBM study released this week said that a whole array of other technologies will probably be applied through truck fleets first. IBM said that by 2030, less than a decade from now, of course, the trucking industry will see innovations like capacity as a service, crowdsourced delivery, 
truck platooning, optimized predictive maintenance, driver, truck, and road-specific routing, smart cargo, and automated driver assist. Those tools, I'm sorry, will be enabled by uh, trends like uh, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, advanced analytics, and machine learning. So a lot of familiar terms that we've been hearing about as well in recent years, but uh, it, it, what IBM is saying is that they're really going to start to gain traction on making some real-world tools uh, that that's, drivers are going to see very soon in the cab. Uh, IBM got this information from a survey of executives at both commercial vehicle manufacturers and also ancillary equipment manufacturers who make bodies and trailers and engines and things. Uh, it spanned a total of uh, some 1,300 executives from um, about 1,100 companies. Ben, did IBM say if these technologies would be available to the whole industry at once? Well, the survey showed that various companies will ride this wave uh, of what a lot of people call digitalization uh, at their own speeds, uh, not too surprisingly. Uh, in the survey, IBM said that 64% of uh, trucking fleet executives said that their organization's future success depends on that digital reinvention that we've been talking about. But the respondents also said that they're just in the early stages of that digital reinvention. Um, and the total estimated that they were only about 36% complete. Uh, another factor that might slow that process down for certain companies is the need to train their employees how to use those new tools. Uh, IBM said uh, they estimated some $118 billion worth of spending will likely be needed by truck companies to, uh, as they say, continuously reskill their employees by 2030. Uh, and that just means that uh, confronted with these new tools, uh, empowered by them, um, that workers just need to learn something new every year. Uh, and, and, and that's that reskilling term. But in the meantime, uh, market forces are still pushing these digitalization changes forward quickly. Uh, things like the growing importance of sustainability, uh, the adoption of uh, electric powertrains, and virtual shopping experiences uh, to cope with the uh, rising e-commerce volumes that we've often been talking about. So uh, as truck executives deal with those changes, uh, they'll face three main questions, IBM said, about the digitalization process. Uh, first, how can a truck organization reinvent itself to become more like a high-tech company uh, that centers its business on digital and data? Second, what role will truck companies play in goods mobility beyond their traditional role of simply moving freight? And lastly, how will truck companies attract and retain, and as we were saying, continuously reskill their workforce uh, to deliver on those uh, cool new tools? Yeah, it will be interesting to see how companies manage that transition, as well as to see how many of those predictions pan out. Thanks, Ben. Absolutely. We'll be watching it closely. And Victoria, you wrote this week about cargo theft. Can you share about that report? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So um, an annual report from logistics insurance company TT Club and supply chain intelligence firm BSI uh, revealed some interesting trends about cargo theft this week. The group found the groups, I should say, found that in transit theft decreased globally last year, while thefts from warehouses and other storage facilities increased. Now this is interesting for a couple of reasons. In transit theft is is always you know always comprises the most um, of recorded incidents, and these include things like hijackings and direct thefts from vehicles and other modes of transportation. Um, but interestingly, last year it accounted for 71% of incidents worldwide, compared to 87% the year before. On the other hand, warehouse and storage facility thefts 
rose to 25% of all incidents up from 10% in 2019. So it's the shift in, in where the thefts occurred um, that, uh, the, that the companies found most, most interesting. I should say this, is a, as I said, it's a global report and trends, the trends vary regionally. Looking at just a couple of regions, Europe saw the biggest shift. Thefts from warehouses and production facilities across uh, Europe rose to 48% of all incidents compared to something like 18% in 2019. In Asia, storage facility thefts remained at about 50% of all incidents. Here in North America, it's a little different. In-transit theft is still um, still the biggest, uh, the primary problem here, um, with cargo theft occurring almost exclusively from things like hijackings and uh, thefts directly from parked vehicles. But there are differences uh, according to countries. So thieves in the United States and Canada tend to most frequently steal things from uh, by targeting cargo trucks parked in insecure locations, whereas south of the border in Mexico, it's, it's more likely to be hijacking. So that's a little bit of the lay of the land and where the shift is coming from. Victoria, did the report indicate any reasons for this shift? Well, like we've been hearing on just about every issue, it's the pandemic. So they attribute it to this shift in consumer buying behavior that we've been tracking and reporting on and the resulting um, you know, supply chain shifts and disruptions that we've seen as a result of that. Specifically, they point to things like the growing stockpile of products. You know, we see you know, products being stored, more and more of them all around the world. High value targets like personal protective equipment and also the potential for vaccine supply chains to, or the vaccine supply chain to come under threat. So these are all things they say contributed to the change last year and are expected to shape trends this year as well. Uh, I wanted to point out some, just something interesting they mentioned about the vaccine supply chain. The researchers said there'd been no incidents of vaccine theft noted to date, but they said it could happen in the coming months as the vaccine rollout continues and hope, hopefully uh, intensifies. Um, and the point they made was that companies will need to, uh, in the, in the you know, medical supply chain, will have to adhere to strict um, existing distribution and security protocols to really, really keep those supply chains safe. And that's another part of the port report. They talk about mitigation efforts and strategies for both manufacturing and transportation organizations to take to sort of um, minimize uh, their risk around all of these issues. Um, in our story on DC Velocity, we include a link um, for readers to download the port report, the full report, I should say, if they're interested. Thanks, Victoria. Yeah, that is very interesting and something we'll continue to track as we move along. Yeah, you're welcome. We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories. And also check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. Thanks, Ben and Victoria, for sharing highlights of the news this week. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be here. Yes, you're welcome. And again, our thanks to Craig Hoskins of IFTA for being with us today. We encourage your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us if you like at podcast at dcvelocity.com. And we also encourage you to rate this podcast if your podcast platform allows for that. We do appreciate your feedback, and it really does help people to find us. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by Aptian. Forged from decades of industry experience, Aptian routing and scheduling supports logistics and delivery fulfillment operations with the tools needed to master supply chain challenges, optimize route plans, and reduce fleet costs. Learn more about how Aptian can help you get ready to deliver operational success at aptian.com. We do encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Just search for Logistics Matters to find us. Our new episodes are uploaded each Friday. And we'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters, when we will talk about some of the distribution problems with getting COVID vaccines where they need to go very quickly. So be sure to join us. Until then, please stay safe and have a great week.